Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease and a whole lot of love, you transform 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. LED headlights, spoilers, whatever you need eBay Motors has it at affordable prices. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride every time. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hi, welcome to the Aspen NBC podcast. I'm your host, Nate Ryan. Here with my colleague from NASCAR Talk on NBCSports.com, Dustin Long. We are talking virtually tonight, right after a very eventful race at Circuit of the Americas, where Tyler Reddick won his first race of the 2023 season, his fourth career Cup Series win, and his third on a road course. Dustin, he's got wins now at Road America, the Indianapolis Motor Speedway Road Course, and now Circuit of the Americas. And... I think it's beyond debate, Dustin, at this point. I mean, I know you you spent a lot of time this week asking guys about the fact that Tyler Reddick moves from Chevrolet to Toyota. Toyota's had its struggles on road courses well-documented last year. The way Tyler Reddick ran in the Toyota today for 2311 racing, I mean, I know Chase Elliott is considered the best road course racer in NASCAR, and it's sort of still up for debate because he was out of this race, and we don't know when he's coming back, but obviously he's out right now with a broken leg. But to me right now, you can make the case that Tyler Reddick is the best road course racer in NASCAR. I don't think there's any doubt about it. I mean, when you look at what Tyler Reddick has done with the Toyota to win like he did, look, I think that I think you could say he probably had the best car all weekend. And when's the last time you could say that about a Toyota at a road course? You couldn't say that at all last year. And Toyotas were not very good on the road courses. I know Christopher Bell won at the Roval last year, but before then, you know, the Toyotas really struggled to have any consistency and to do anything. So to me, that was one of the interesting storylines going into this weekend is what, how well Tyler Reddick would do and could he help lift Toyota up higher? Uh, I know Ty Gibbs finished ninth, but you know, for the most part, I don't know if I saw as much of a carryover from what Tyler Reddick did to the other Toyotas, maybe Christopher Bell a little bit until he got caught and stuff. So I think there's still an issue. I think there's still a concern in the Toyota camp. I think they still have to look at what what Tyler's doing, if there's some things that he can do. I think Denny Hamlin made a comment this weekend at, at Coda. Tyler does things a, a lot differently, and so Denny's kind of having to relearn some things or adjust how he has to do it in attacking a road course. So the Tyler Reddick effect, I think, will be interesting to watch as, as you hit more road courses. Yeah, I, I don't think you can argue that he's not the, the best road course racer right now in Cup. Yeah, and you mentioned it, Dustin. Uh, the next highest finishing Toyota was Ty Gibbs. Joe Gibbs Racing Toyota, who was a top 10 finisher, did finish ninth. But Denny Hamlin said it before the race during the, the grid walk. He basically told Michael Waltrip, don't count me up for a win. I might try to run at the front, but you're not going to see me run for a win. And that's the narrative certainly we heard last year. And it's interesting you point out that Hamlin said that about Reddick, because that was what you were asking guys this week, is how much can a guy who's as gifted as Tyler Reddick is on road courses, how much can that transfer to the cars and can he improve these Camrys that were so weak last year on road courses, admittedly weak to the point where David Wilson was saying, we've got a real problem here. I think what we saw today is, I mean, (laughs) there's only so much that transfers, I guess, right? Because 
I mean, Tyler Reddick was unbeatable under breaking. I can't remember an instance where I've seen a guy be so strong in terms of just being able to outbreak anybody else at will. And it didn't seem like any other Toyota drivers were able to do that. So whatever he was doing, I guess they're still, to your point, like what Denny said, they're still figuring out how to put that in their cars. Here's where I think progress is made is that the Toyota struggled. The 45 group was able to dial in the car to fit what Tyler needed. And I think that was one of the important things that guys talked to when, when I talked to this week is about impact he can have is he knows that feel he's looking for in a car and he can say, look, this is what it's doing. This is the feel I'm looking for, or this isn't the feel we've got to figure things out. I think they had essentially the feel from the whole weekend on for as fast as they were, as, 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 as well as he was able to attack the, the course and practice and especially qualifying. So now I think it's the rest of the Toyota's kind of catching up. It's again, it's one weekend. I think, you know, maybe they were able to pick up some stuff. Again, this was, you know, he was one of the three guys that uh, did the Goodyear tire test. I think it's interesting. Again, you want some of your better ones doing the tire test. You know, he wins. Kyle Busch did the tire test, finished the second. Austin Sindrick did the tire test, finished sixth. So the Toyota teams, the, the 2311 team, the 45 team had that opportunity to take those notes from that January test session and build it into the car. Again, you still got to work with your driver. You got to fit your driver's style. And maybe these drivers have to adjust because if Tyler's not up there, it's probably for the most part a Chevy train and it's, and it's Hendrick cars up there. And, and look, it probably would have been Chase Elliott as well. If the Chase had been competing, you would have had Chase, Byron, and Bowman racing up there, you know, at the, at the front. So Toyotas are still for a little bit behind. I think the Chevrolets are at least behind uh, the Hendrick cars and, and probably the track house cars on this track other than Tyler Reddick. And I still, so there's still more work to do, be done. Obviously they've got time now. The next road course is until Sonoma in June. And then you start getting into a stretch of road course races. So that'll be a key stretch. What we'll see, uh, you know, coming up after later in the summer. So Tyler Reddick leads 41 of 75 laps. That was the most race high 41. The next most laps were led by William Byron. He led 28 laps starting from the pole. Those also were the, the one, two qualifiers, William Byron on pole, Tyler Reddick qualifying second. Certainly, Dustin, those were the two dominant cars of the weekend. But I think what was interesting was the way the strategies were unfolding until, and we're going to get to it, a very <laughs> chaotic finish, as we always come to expect on road courses, three green line checkers. We're going to get to that. But until that point, it was interesting that Tyler Reddick was essentially setting himself up, his team Chief Billy Scott were setting him up to run this race on three stops. Billy, were you planning on three stops the whole time, or uh, was that something where you didn't mean to get off strategy from everybody else? Yes, it was most likely three, not at those particular laps. Um, so yeah, when the yellow come out early, uh, you know, obviously you expect everybody else in a situation like that that's kind of on the fence to, to do the opposite of you when when it's when he, you've been the dominant car all weekend. You know, and, and kudos to Tyler for staying focused and dealing with, you know, that was really the only chance, only time we were back in traffic, and he uh, dealt with it really well, made quick work of it, kept the car in one piece. We still thought it was going to work out the best. It still was going to work out the best, even without the way the yellows felt. Um, so we did that with the plan of two-stopping from there, right? That still fell into the three-stop strategy window we had looked at in the beginning. Untimely caution right outside the last field window. That made it more of a close race than, than we were wanting. Um, but we had already got the lead at that point and, and fortunately able to raise some heads up and he had speed. Whereas it seemed like William Byron and a lot of other cars were going to be content with two stops. Tyler Reddick, I think, pitted on lap 13 from the lead uh, when Byron and a lot of other uh, lead lap cars, the contenders stayed out. So 
What did you make of that, Dustin? I thought that was a really interesting move. That, to me, signaled how confident 2311 Racing felt about its driver, that we're just going to put him on offense. We don't care if he has to make up the time from an extra pit stop with fresh tires and him being the best road course driver, maybe in cup right now, we're going to feel confident we can win this race. Yeah, I thought it was interesting because you know, like I said, he pitted lap thirteen. So look, if this was a if this was a been a, the, the road course race from last year, lap thirteen would have been the last opportunity to pit before they closed pit road for the end of the stage at lap fifteen. So basically, I almost felt like they were running the race at the beginning, just like they would have last year. And basically, with the stage breaks and the cautions, if you're if you think you've got a chance to win the race. You're going to give up stage points in the first stage. You're going to pit before the stage, before pit road closes. And then you're going to put yourself in position to get a better track position, put yourself in position in the second stage, or you could even, you know, do it again in the second stage. I think what, when I went back and looked at the stats, nearly half the top 10 drivers in the six road course races last year didn't even score points in either stage. So look, when you've got the best car, that's, that's a play you can make. Now, the issue is if you get a caution at the wrong time, then you get put in a in a vulnerable position. We saw that in the Xfinity race on Saturday with AJ Allmendinger having a very strong car. He went out and pit. There was a caution shortly after. Then he had a couple restarts in the twenties and got beaten, banged around, and almost thought you know maybe that was going to be it for him before he came back and won that race. So there is a little bit of risk involved. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Even though they sacrificed any stage points, stage one, they won stage two, so they pick up a playoff point. Now they're essentially locked in the playoffs because they win the race, but. Of course, it was not without drama. As I mentioned, you had three green-white checkered finishes. And we saw this interesting situation, Dustin, where Reddick was missing it somehow in turn one. It wasn't, I think, until that second-to-last restart, where he, or maybe it was the, the third-to-last, the first green-white checkered, where he finally kind of figured out how to nail it. But up until then, I think it was in doubt. And I think the team was telling him on the radio, kind of coaching him to change yep. his marker as he entered turn one, because he was doing something that was allowing Byron and some other guys to kind of get to his outside. Yeah, that was, and I was listening to him and, and for the most part, uh, William Byron throughout most of the race. And it was fascinating hearing that conversation on the radio for Reddick asking his team about that and just the struggles in turn one, because he was constantly missing that corner so much and drafting out so far wide that he was leaving the inside so far open that, you know, he was losing positions or, you know, having to battle, while going through the S's, I know that's something he said in the in the press conference afterward. That, you know that's that's not the ideal situation because now you may get yourself in trouble with the the track limits and and crossing over the lines and being too far inside the S's and get penalized. So you get a sense of the the mind of Tyler Reddick, and they're talking about how much he works and how much time he puts in the simulator and how much effort he puts into. It. And he he's he's quizzing his guys, his team about. Hey, what, what does it look like? What am I not doing? Because I know at one point on one of the restarts, they said, look, you're making your move, your defensive move too late. You're making that move, but then you're hitting the brakes as you're starting to, as you're making your turn and that's throwing your car off. So make your defensive move a little earlier before you get start turning the wheel and hitting the brakes and everything like that. So obviously that last one was he he nailed it and, and, and did it well, got through turn one and turn two. And after that, it was pretty much gone. And as long as there weren't any more cautions, it was it was his race to lose and he didn't. Yeah, and he closed it out. That's really great insight, Dustin, to kind of give us that that window and what the, how the team was coaching him through it. And I think there was a need for that reassurance because this season, Tyler Reddick's first with 2311 racing after being in the Cup Series the last three years of Richard Childress racing, becoming a winner there, but then having kind of an awkward transition out of Richard Childress racing, gets to 2311 racing, Kurt Busch, 
on the race broadcast today for Fox. He, of course, has exited the number 45 seat because of the concussion that he suffered last year in the Pocono crash. So moves on to 2311 racing, putting Tyler Reddick in that seat. And some expectations there, Dustin, certainly very high. There was a lot made when Tyler Reddick was hired about they expected him to do some really big things right off the bat. Rob Tianson from the PodiumFinish.net. How validating is this victory knowing what you guys saw in Tyler Reddick long before he got to be in this number 45 ride with the circumstances uh, surrounding Kurt Busch? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's why I went after him as early as I did. I just, I, I didn't, I wanted to get the jump on all the other teams because I knew he was going to be the most coveted free agent in a very, very, very long time. So that's why I got the jump on it. Now it cost me a lot of money to do it, but it pays dividends. You have to, you have to have that driver that you feel like can carry you to championships and wins for decades. And I think that uh, we have that guy um, and it's not going to stop at road courses, uh, dirt racing, short tracks, speedways. He's just, he's got what it takes on every racetrack we go to. The 2023 season didn't get off to a great start for Tyler Reddick, Dustin. Daytona, 39th place finish in a crash. Fontana, 34th place finish in a crash. He kind of turned it around Phoenix and Atlanta. He had top fives the last two weeks. So perhaps he was building to this, but now that was really interesting. Kyle Petty actually said on the NASCAR NBC podcast, I think on Motormouths as well, a few weeks ago that Tyler Reddick was one of the, the drivers Kyle Petty was most concerned about because he thought Tyler Reddick might have been pressing a little bit in this new environment, in this high profile ride that he's now in driving for Denny Hamlin and Michael Jordan at 2311 racing. What's your opinion on that? You've talked to Tyler throughout the season. What, how do you think he's weathered this change and how much did this win mean for him in his career? Well, it's not easy when you leave a ride and then the guy that comes in your car wins the second race out. And Kyle Busch nearly could have won the clash in his first race with, with that team. So the way Kyle Busch started off the season and the way things kind of start off for, for Tyler, I mean, again, that's whether that weighed a whole lot on Tyler, he's not really expressed that. But again, start off the season with a, a couple rough finishes. That's, that's, that's not what you want because you've got all this excitement going into a new season for any team. And it just kind of deflates everybody. And it's just kind of how you get work through that. Now, obviously, Look, Tyler's been through some challenges throughout his career, even in the Xfinity Series, winning back-to-back championships. It was a one-year one. Junior Motorsports is that, you know, he struggled all season long, and all of a sudden he came out and and won and, and won it at, at Miami. And it was like you wouldn't have expected it because of the way he struggled just to, to get into the playoffs and make it and go far in the playoffs, and all of a sudden he was the champion. So certainly now I know that it, it was a perfect track for him, but he certainly showed his resolve in being able to fight through things that he needed to fight through to go and have a championship. And then again, he's a guy who goes to another team the next season and wins the championship again with, with a second different team. So he's kind of gone through some of that, but then it's when it's, when it's somebody else in your, in what had been your car winning races, winning a race, and then you struggling, it, it's a little bit challenging as you're trying to learn all the new things at, at, at 2311, how Toyota does things and, and working through, through those issues. But he's got a really good head on his shoulders. And here's a guy who's under 30. He, and Denny Hamlin, when he signed him last year, talked about him being a generational talent. You put every effort you can into getting this guy. And, you know, it was a bold move by 2311 to sign him for the 2024 season because before all this Kyle Busch stuff, Tyler Reddick was supposed to be in the eight car this year. He wasn't even supposed to be over 2311 yet. But when Kyle Busch became available, it made it easy for Richard Childress to let uh, Tyler go. You know, before then, he was just going to hold on to Tyler until something else happened. And then Kyle Busch falls into his lap. So you get an opportunity to get a two-time champion, 
even for a guy who might be a generational talent um, with where Childress was, it was more important to get that uh, two-time champion in that number eight car as soon as possible. Yeah, I'm glad you bring up the Kyle Busch point as well, Dustin, because yeah, Tyler Reddick's future here really was predicated on both of the Busch brothers uh, in a sense, and that you're right, 2311 Racing announced the signing of Tyler Reddick for 2024 before Kurt Busch even had his crash at Pocono. So there were a lot of things that had to happen, a lot of dominoes that had to fall, in Kurt Busch's case, unfortunate ones. Uh, that had to fall for Tyler, Tyler Reddick to kind of arrive in this situation. And the Kyle Busch point you make is great because I think that that did put more of a magnifying glass on Tyler Reddick, that Kyle Busch steps into that car, wins at Fontana in the second race of the season in the car that Tyler Reddick had been driving the last couple of years. And uh, Zach Catanzaretti, our producer at uh, NBC Sports, was at Coda today, and he got this quote from Kyle Busch. I, I got alongside Reddick there on that one restart into the S's, and I could have forced the issue and pushed him off or whatever. But uh, we ran each other hard. We ran each other clean and gave each other room. So um, I, I, I respect the kid, and he's been nothing but great to me. So I, I give him respect back. And so we, we've had some good races between each other. They were really fast. I mean, they deserve to win. There's no sense in, in taking it from them. Interesting that Kyle Busch essentially would say, hey, I wasn't going to take this away from Tyler Reddick. I don't think Kyle Busch, we're going to get to this in a minute, but I don't think Kyle Busch would be saying that about Ross Chastain and probably some other drivers. But I think also because there hadn't been an issue or seemingly we haven't seen an issue between Tyler and Kyle Busch for Kyle Busch to go out and turn Tyler for the win a week after he talked about to us, the media yeah. at Atlanta about the lack of respect right. in the garage um, yep. and, and pleading for some help in that maybe in, in essence, you know, suggesting NASCAR needs to step in more often, I think would have just been hypocritical. Now, if it's against, if it's with somebody that he's had an issue with, or there's, there's a history there, that's another thing, but I'm not aware of a history between Tyler and, and Kyle. So if Kyler just turns them, then everything he said last week is worthless in, in a sense, because you, because of he's going against everything he said, unless he can further explain why he made those actions. And obviously, you know, like Tyler said in the press conference, he said he felt like, you know, he hadn't had any issues with Kyle. They raced clean. He felt confident with him behind him on the restart, as opposed to some of those others who had been behind him for some of those other late restarts. So Kyle's got to win too. So, it, it, you know, this is, this is race six. This is not race 25. This is race 25 and Kyle Busch has to win to get in the playoffs. Well, everybody understands the gloves are going to come off more and there's going to be more aggression. And if he can get to the back bumper, this is like a short track race, at least the way turn one is in some of these corners that you're going to put the bumper to him. And, and you know, if they can't control it, then so be it. That's on that's on them is the way you look at it. I think that Tyler Reddick's reputation is fairly pristine among yeah. his peers. And there were a lot of bent emotions after this race. We're going to get to all that. There were a lot of angry drivers. We're going to touch on that. But first, I want to make two more points about the finish. I don't know if you got this, Dustin, but I was definitely feeling some Ned Jarrett uh, 1993 Daytona 500 vibes toward the end of this race. Of course, that was the famous Daytona 500, Dale Jarrett's first win, and Ned Jarrett's in the booth rooting him on. Kurt Busch, as I mentioned, was driving the 45 car. Uh, until that Pocono crash last year, and he got emotional. It's amazing, 2311, and how fast we're growing, and how how much we're doing together. It's forward together on this program, and it brings brings me a little bit to be choked up. I was hoping to be back in that car, but it's in good hands, and it's a great team, and I love racing with those guys. I thought it was interesting that we were almost like watching Kurt Busch in real time, Dustin, kind of process the emotions about his own career 
while watching the guy who has the ride that he did last year. But Kurt obviously was extremely graceful about it. He was very respectful, had nothing but great things to say, was rooting for Tyler the whole way through the finish, understandably, uh, which I thought made for, for great drama, great TV. But on the other hand, it was interesting to, I think, kind of watch Kurt process all that in real time. I think we forget how important a lot of this, how important this is to these guys. And when you have something that you've spent your entire lifetime on, and yes, Kurt was toward the latter part of his career, but when it's taken from you, as opposed to you being able to go out in your own way, that there are those unresolved emotions and maybe Kurt recognized it, or maybe even even caught Kurt off guard is just, you know, how it impacted him. And maybe he thought he was kind of, over it but again this was this was a guy who won what was it uh last may so less than a year ago won at kansas and so he's been in that car and you know i think in one sense you know this is only what the third you know sixth race it's it's uh you know in some sense maybe still sees it as part of his car even though it's it's tyler's car now but to, to see it win maybe it was as much an out of body experience to see that car which you know he thinks he should be in and it just probably adds to the frustration that he's not cleared to be able to race yet um, if he wanted to race in anything. And, you know, I know Denny said, look, you know, whenever he's ready to go, we've got a car ready for him and, and he'll be he's with us and he's always going to be with us. So, you know, I hope he gets well. And I, I frankly look forward to the day that Kurt Busch can get back into a cup race at some point. Yeah, hopefully he'll get to end it, like you said, on his own terms and, and maybe get one more shot running well in the cup series, maybe even getting a win. Uh, but yeah, third win for three drivers now in the 45 since that Kurt Busch victory last May. You also had Bubba Wallace win in the 45 at Kansas as well. Grand, it was somewhat of a different situation with the number changing, but interesting that that number now has gone victory lane three times in, in less than a year with three drivers. One other point I just want to ask you about, Dustin, I want to give NASCAR a ton of credit for doing away with yellows at stage breaks. That's been talked about ad nauseum for years about, do you need to have full course cautions at stage breaks on road courses. And NASCAR considered it, debated it, molded it, and finally this year decided, okay, starting this year, we're no longer going to stop the races under yellow when we reach the end of stages. We're just going to pay out the points and keep it green. I think that worked really well today. I think the next thing they need to look at is local yellows because I think we saw it today, particularly with the end of this race. One, they need to look at local yellows, but two, if they're not going to look at local yellows, if we're on a green-white checkered and the dominant car has a one-second lead and clearly is the winner of this race is the so-called right winner, and there's been an incident on the first lap of a green-white checkered and it's put down debris that's behind the leader and the leader's not going to reach it before the finish line, I think I would be okay with them holding the yellow until they wave the white for the leader, then throw the yellow. The race is essentially over. Everybody's positions are frozen. Then you get the debris, which is out of harm's way. Where do you stand on all that? Local yellows and, and should NASCAR maybe look at officiating cautions a little bit differently in those types of situations? Well, you know, I kind of thought about going into today is, is you know, the idea of a local yellow because you got a 3.41 mile course. So if you have a caution, it makes for a long caution lap. And, and look, some of these cautions were only a few laps, but they essentially were close to 20 minutes long. And is is that the best interest of the sport? You're, you're around the IndyCar circuit more than I am. I'm curious how they do in a sense. I know they have the local cautions, but you know, part of the thing that NASCAR said is they don't want safety officials, safety people out on the on a track where cars are going at even with the reduced speed. Obviously, it works for IndyCar that they'll have equipment out there, they'll have cars out there. Now, I can think of a time or two where 
again, it's it's an extreme case, but I think what was it? Um, the Andretti's running in the back of a safety truck at Detroit one year. And I think maybe there's been a couple other instances or even some close calls. You know, how does IndyCar do it? How is it something that can be done? Because obviously it's about the safety of the individuals. You don't want to be putting people in harm's way. And if there's a feeling you're going to be doing that, then I'm fine with the full course cautions. If there's a way to do it with local cautions, then I'd be more open to that idea. And obviously IndyCar seems to have found a way to make it work. IndyCar and a few other series, I think, are figuring out how to make it work. And your point's well taken. I mean, safety always is paramount, as it should be in NASCAR and any other racing series. So I get that argument. But I just think your other point is very well taken. When you have a road course, that's almost three and a half miles long. I mean, Road America, obviously, even longer. Once you start running one or two caution laps around there, it feels like an eternity. Just hope that's something that gets addressed. But let's move on to the good stuff. Emotions, angry drivers, which I know you and I both love guys embracing the hate as much as we are about peace and love in the world. There's nothing like the end of a NASCAR road course race these days. Let's start with uh, Daniel Suarez was particularly angry after this race, Dustin. We saw video on the cooldown lap entering the pits. He slams his teammate Ross Chastain out of the way. And then he bumps Bowman, Alex Bowman, twice in the pits. You know, talk about safety, like with safety workers and you know fans and people around. I mean, not immediately adjacent to the cars, but close enough that they could potentially be in harm's way. I think my first question would be, does NASCAR look at that? Do you, would you expect that there could be a penalty coming from that? I, I would think they certainly look at it. Uh, section 4.4.B of the cup rulebook says that they can, uh, you know, a, an action that penalize the drivers for, you know, making contact with another competitor on pit road in an intentional manner. If they feel like that's the case, which certainly it seems like it was there, they can penalize in a lot of different ways. It can be a point penalty of 25 to 50 points for the driver and, and or the team owner. It can be a fine and or a fine of 50 to $100,000. There could even be a suspension, which I don't think this I don't think this goes to that level. I think the question is, is it a fine or is it some sort of point penalty type of thing? Because again, you need to you need to address this if you're NASCAR, but you also need to show the rest of the garage that don't get in the habit of doing this. So you're going to show your frustration, show it on the track, not on pit road where there's you know people who are, could be innocent bystanders impacted by this. And, and look, NASCAR, as you know, they, they've taken that a lot. They've taken that very seriously about when things happen on pit road that you don't do it. And uh, so it wouldn't surprise me if there's some sort of penalty probably Tuesday on, uh, for Suarez for his actions after the race. So let's go back to why Daniel Suarez was so angry. And essentially it was on the second to last restart, the second green white checkered. We had a situation where Ross Chastain probably running in like row five or so. He runs Inside into row Alex five. Bowman. Row five. He runs into Alex Bowman. Bowman hits Suarez, who had restarted in the top five and was on the inside. Bowman hits Suarez. Suarez gets sent, ends up finishing 27th, goes from pretty much a top five to a, outside the top 25 in the in the closing laps here. So I'll just run through what some of the post-race comments were. Again, thanks to Zach Catanzaretti for uh, gathering these. Ross Chastain said, I got spun the restart a couple restarts before, and he got it later. I, I, don't, I didn't get mad when I got spun. I, I just... Try to get my car to start. It was in like low oil protection mode, and once I got the ECU cycled, I got going, and I never thought about it again. I don't, I don't understand how we can be so upset about crazy restarts that we're doing. I tried being up top and going on the outside and got spun. I was on the bottom and got slammed into. And are you not entertained? Sorry, are you not entertained? Come on, this is what this is what this is what we love. I don't love it doing it, but this is as a sport. We're not boring. 
Alex Bowman's take was... Yeah, the problem is if you don't peek out and bomb the guy in front of you, the guy behind you does it to you. Like, so what do you do there, right? It's not right. Um, the way we race is embarrassing, and if 12-year-olds were doing it, we'd be yelling at them, but uh, here we are saying it's the best thing in the world on TV. Ross Chastain and Daniel Suarez had a conversation post-race. Alex Bowman, after being rammed by Suarez, he talked to Suarez, and they apparently just worked it out immediately. Well, I think Bowman said, go talk to your teammate. Yeah, it's pretty much exactly what he yeah. said. He was like, that guy did it. So it seemed like Bowman, Suarez was fine with Bowman, but Suarez was not fine with Chastain. And the only thing I could really make out from their conversation was Chastain said something to the effect of, don't be all high and mighty, is what he said to his track house racing teammate, Daniel Suarez. And obviously we just heard those quotes from Chastain. He feels as if, hey, this is part of the deal, man. Just deal with it. What do you make of all the angst and animosity after this race? And can track house racing put it behind them? Yeah, I think they can. Um, I guess my question is, what's the expectation for Ross Chastain? And look, he's on the inside of row five. He's starting ninth. Suarez, I think, was fourth or so. Chastain's got, uh, as you said, Bowman in front of him. They're going to the they're going to the inside of the corner. They're going far left. Uh, he's got Briscoe behind him. I, whether there was contact or not, but certainly Chastain was pushing the pushing the limit. And and Suarez finds himself in the middle, in essence. What's the expectation for Ross Chastain? Is he supposed to not make every effort possible to try to take the position, and 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 he's instead supposed to protect Suarez and let Suarez get okay and then get through that corner, or is he supposed to go for it because he's got sponsors and it's his team too? And at the end of the day, I know they're teammates. Look, you got to look out after each other. I get that, but at the end of the race, there's there comes a point everybody talks about. I got to look out for my own team. I guess my question, and maybe only Daniel Suarez can answer this, is what's the expectation for Ross Chastain? What's he supposed to do uh, in that situation? And you're going, are you going to put the reins, if you're Justin Marks, on Ross Chastain in a situation like that? I don't think so. I think you're, you're thinking the guy's in ninth. You know, this turn one is a crazy turn. Unleash the hounds and let it go and let's see what happens. Ross Chastain said, I didn't get mad when I got spun. I just tried to get my car to start. And you know, to Ross Chastain's credit, he actually rebounded and came all the way back to fourth from falling pretty deep in the field and also recovering from a pit stop that had dropped yeah. him from the top five deep in the field, where it appeared that he was going to be the lone challenger at one point to William Byron and Tyler Reddick running for the win. So yeah, I guess it's a lot to process, Dustin, but I'm just wondering, Like, I think that Ross Chastain said to Daniel Suarez and would agree with your question to Suarez, like, what do you expect? I just wonder if like, at what point is that rationalization of, hey, I can race guys however I want to. I mean, maybe that's what the essence of Ross Chastain. I think like, that is. Yeah. That is I mean, maybe that's, that's just his worldview, right? Like is that I'm sorry, but like, I'm going to race you the way you race me and you can expect me to race you always with just hammer down and beating the crap out of you. And that's why I guess he doesn't get upset when people run into him for the most part. Well, it's just like Alex Bowman said. He said he was he felt like the racing was embarrassing in a sense. Everybody, a lot of people are doing it. The front of the field was as respectful as could be. Now, again, once you get three, four rows back, everybody's going for everything. These cars are indestructible. Reddick made the reference in the post-race press conference about the clash. It was amazing watching the clash, just how guys would send it into the corners and know that there was no way they were going to make it without running in the back of somebody. And the guys just kept doing it. One guy did it. Another guy did it. And it was pretty soon. That was the standard way of going into the corner. You know, if NASCAR wanted to address it, they could have done it at the clash where it was an exhibition race where it wouldn't have mattered. 
But again, that puts on a show, cars beating and banging and some action and things like that. Is NASCAR going to step in, you know, for this over what happened in turn one at Coda? No, because it's beating and banging and, and action like that. And so what happens is if the, if the officials aren't going to step in, then drivers have to elevate. They have to be more aggressive. And I'm sorry if that's not how a, a, the gentlemanly, gentlemanly racer drives a road course, but that's the way it's done in NASCAR. When you got these, uh, you know, fenders and you got these cars that I'm not going to say are indestructible, but are you know, pretty hard to beat on. Let me ask you, let me say, remember when it was with the previous car that, you know, everybody was complaining about there was no contact beating and banging at the short track, because if you made any contact whatsoever, you knocked in a fender that cut a tire, you know, there's no benefit to doing it. Well, now the fenders don't cave in. So you're just going to smack people and you're just going to hit them in the corners like that. So that's what it's become. I don't think it's going to change. I don't even know how NASCAR could change it because I don't think you could have penalized people for because if you do you're going to penalize 20 cars at a time i don't think nascar would want to change it because to your point yeah the reason they were strengthened was because too many cut tires not just short tracks but speedways like everywhere there were cut tires whenever there was any damage they definitely want to get away from that and you're right like tyler reddick said in the post race today these front and rear bumpers are now so resilient you can hit somebody really hard without knocking anything off. And you're right. We saw that the clash and we certainly saw it with Ross Chastain kind of bulldozing his way a little bit to a, a fourth place finish and uh, give him credit for that. Wasn't the best day, by the way, for Trackhouse and that not only you have Daniel Suarez finish in 27th, but you also had Kimi Raikkonen, F1 champion in his second start, finishing 29th. Of course, he was one of Many interlopers in this race. Connor Daly from the IndyCar Series finishes 36th. Jordan Taylor in Chase Elliott's car finishes 24th. But the best finish of the interlopers, Jensen Button, 2009 Formula One champion, finishes 18th in the Rick Ware Racing Ford. Button had an interesting comment afterward, Dustin. Um, he said, Trying to make, you know place my car in the right place. I just got it wrong every time. And normally if you're a little bit slow through a corner, nobody tries to overtake you on the outside because they're not going to make it all the way on the next one. But here they do because they get a wheel inside for the next one. And if you turn in, you turn around. So the first thing was really bad. I felt it was embarrassing um, for me. And then I was like, guys, we need to pit. We need to get a fresh set of tires on. And I need some air. I need some fresh air. And uh, I got that. And pace was good. Consistency was good. I was really happy. Um, and passed a few cars, which was nice. Uh, and then we got a little bit unlucky with the, the safety car because it was just two, two laps before our window. Pitted. The next then was mayhem. Um, we also made a couple of changes which just didn't work. Big oversteer, went from like car feeling great to really difficult to drive. I also had a massive whack from Kimmy, and it felt after that the car wasn't quite right. So every time I turned in, the rear ch- tires would chatter brrr, and immediately to oversteer. So it was really difficult, but then towards the end, we made some good calls on stopping and putting some fresh tires on. And uh, I enjoyed the last few restarts, got good placement, good overtaking moves on the outside, and uh, to finish 18th after almost stopping because i had heat exhaustion so hot i don't have a fan in my seat this thing didn't really help me too much i was so hot i thought i was going to faint in the car or be sick so i stopped twice for a minute uh, they put ice on me gave me loads of water and i went back out but so close to getting out of the car because i thought i was going to faint so i must have drank eight bowls of water nine bowls of water in the race and the team kept me calm we got a reasonably good result at the end so i was happy and we talk a lot about our drivers, athletes. I think our NASCAR drivers, athletes, we saw from an F1 driver today on a hot day in Austin, Texas. These guys are athletes. And I know you were listening to Buttons Radio as well, and you kind of heard that progression through the race too. Yeah, I listened to him, especially at the end of the race. And it was really intriguing what he said, because he goes, uh, he mentioned to his team, he says, these cup drivers are on it every second of the race. 
And he also goes on to call the race a roller coaster, saying, quote, a whole F1 season in one race. And so <laughs> it was a hard day for him. I think at the end of the way it came out, I, I think you know, he'll look back on Palm this fondly. Obviously, this is not the last time that we're going to see him. We'll see him at Chicago. He'll be there and he'll also do the Indy Road course. So he's got two more races left with this Rick Ware ride with the partnership with Stuart Haas Racing. So as he gets a little bit more experience, maybe he you know, gets a, another better performance. He can top this 18th. Can he get a top 15? Can he get a top 10 if things work out? But uh, that he, you know, after the race, his immediate reaction was kind of a, you know, appreciation and, you know, enjoying the experience. I think is a is a good sign for him and and for the NASCAR fans. I think uh, a lot of people when I tweeted out were really appreciative that that he looked at it that way, and we're looking forward to seeing him come back and race again later this year. Yeah, it'll be great to see him uh, at the Chicago Street Course race. Very curious to see how an F one driver does in the first NASCAR Cup Series Street race ever. That'll be entertaining. Well, it certainly felt like probably a full NASCAR season for. Some of these drivers as well, uh, Dustin, with the extended overtime. And uh, we were talking before we got started here. This is the pretty much the quarter pole of the regular season. When you look at where some of these guys are positioned in the points, I think to me, the guy who really jumps out, Dustin, is Kyle Larson finishes 14th today and is now 27th in the point standings. And granted, a lot of that is because of the penalty that Hendrick Motorsports got for its hoodlubers at phoenix that's going to be the appeal will be heard soon this week so that could change but to me what's interesting here is where kyle larson is relative to his other teammates i mean he's five spots behind william byron he's 11 spots behind alex bowman where i feel like you know again depending on what happens with the appeal i feel like if at this point you're outside the top 20 top 25 in points it's gonna be pretty hard to make the playoffs on points especially if there are as many winners or close to it as there were last year i almost feel like Kyle Larson might be getting into must-win territory. Not that he can't win. He can win in anything. And Hendrick Motorsports has had the fastest cars this year. But it's interesting to me that that team is, you know, not off to the kind of start they would want to have either. Well, just think about this. If uh, the appeal goes against Hendrick later this week and they don't get those 100 points back, that are you at what point are you entering a must-win situation for for multiple drivers at Hendrick? I mean, I think everybody expects it to be a must. It's obviously a must-win situation for Chase Elliott to make the playoffs because he's going to miss so many races. You know, what if if Larson has a, a couple bad races here the next couple of weeks and falls further back? Then you have you know essentially the you know the last two uh, Cup champions for Hendrick Motorsports in must-win situations the rest of the regular season. I'm not as worried about Larson at this point because of, of the speed. Uh, again, it's interesting. You know, you think about the two wins that William Byron has. You know, those were situations where Larson was strong and, and Byron beat him on a restart. If, if they split that, then at least Kyle's got that win. I think another thing that's just as big in a sense is William Byron, although he's in a better situation with the wins, he doesn't have those playoff points, at least as of right now, because they lost those 10 playoff points in the penalty. I want to see what this appeal does and see what happens here. But I, I like the speed that Hendrick cars have. I want to see who else can close the gap if, if others can and how that happens the next few weeks. I think it'll be an interesting stretch here. We're getting to the short track season with Richmond next. You got the Bristol dirt race, which you're, you're going to put Tyler Reddick, uh, Kyle Larson, Christopher Bell. I'm sure most people are going to have those three on their fantasy teams going into that race just because of their dirt background and what they can do there. So um, I think Larson's got some opportunities coming up. If if he falters, it could get a little interesting, especially if they don't win that appeal this week. 
it does get interesting, but he does have some opportunities. Like you yeah. said, NASCAR just had its first road course of the season with Coda next week for short track of the season with Richmond Raceway, first track under a mile in length. What do you make of what we might see at Richmond? It was a strategy-laden affair uh, this race a year ago. We saw Denny Hamlin kind of come out of nowhere the last 100 laps and win the race. Uh, what do you look for for Richmond this weekend, and uh, who else might you be looking at for potential rebounds aside from Kyle Larson? Yeah, you know, I think I think that's going to be the fascinating thing is how the cautions play out. And that's the one thing we've seen at Richmond in years past here lately is that there haven't been as many cautions. So there is that element of strategy and what we saw with with Denny and, and Chris Gabehart making the uh, the pit calls to go get the tires and, and go run everybody down that, that stayed out. So, uh, you know, I'll tell you a couple of guys that kind of stand out to me is, is, is even though we talk about the Toyota struggles on the road courses, I look at what Christopher Bell has done this season. He's fifth in points and he's had some strong runs this year, top tens, top fives. This is a guy that uh, I think can do some big things here the next few weeks and it wouldn't surprise me and that he can really kind of assert himself. A couple of guys that are kind of intriguing to me is we've seen how RFK racing has been better this year. I mean, today was not a good day for Brad Keselowski, although his teammate Chris Buescher did get a top 10. You know, what can the RFK cars do? Can they start to contend with some of these others? I think it'll be interesting. Again, the clash is not like every, you know, these other short tracks, but, you know, I know the RFK cars didn't advance to the feature uh, this year, just like last year, but are they better on the short tracks? What what do we see out of them coming up? I guess obviously after today is is how Daniel Suarez and Ross Chastain race around each other because I'm sure they're going to be around each other over the next few weeks uh, on on these short tracks. And I'll, I'll throw out one other name. Hey, uh, a guy who finished 11th today, Corey LaJoy. It was his saying is stacking pennies, and he keeps doing it. He's had one finish outside the top 20 this year in the first six races, which. If that's a Hendrick organization, that's that's not good. But this is Spire Motorsports where they don't have as many people. They don't have the resources, and they're they're making the most of what they have. Corey LaJoy's 15th in points and is in a playoff position after six races. Maybe if Hendrick gets its points back, that changes. But I'm not sure how many people would have predicted Corey LaJoy being 15th in points as we come toward the quarter pull mark of the regular season. So look, they've got their challenges. There's no doubt about that. And with having a couple of the, the super speedway type races early on kind of falls into their favor, you know, maybe they pull some things out here the next few weeks on some of these short tracks. And, and then you've got Talladega coming up after that. So maybe this is still a good stretch for, for Corey LaJoy and the Spire Motorsports team could be a fun team to watch. Yeah, 15th in points. Definitely uh, keep an eye on that team. And you mentioned Brad Kozlowski. I mean, impressive that he's ninth in points as well through six races. So RFK certainly uh, better than it was a year ago. Uh, you will be in Richmond, correct, Dustin? Yes. This weekend? Okay. Yes, I'm All back right, on the so, road for the next month or so. <laughs> I know that's where you love it. So you can catch Dustin's NASCAR talk coverage uh, from Richmond this weekend. I'll be uh, IndyCar race, Texas Motor Speedway, Motorsports Talk on NBCSports.com. Check out all the coverage along with uh, Mike Embry and Dan Beaver's coverage as well. So uh, Dustin, this was a lot of fun. Thanks for doing it. Hey, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Good times. We appreciate Dustin Long for joining us on the NASCAR on NBC podcast. Thanks to Motorsports Manager Emily Conboy for recording this episode and helping with the recording. Thanks to Zach Catanzaretti for all the audio that he compiled post-race at Circuit of the Americas in Austin, Texas today. Go to NBCSports.com or the Motorsports on NBC YouTube channel and you can check out the video that accompanies several of the sound bites that you heard on the podcast today from Zach. You can especially watch that great interview with Jensen Button. 
And as always, you can find more news, columns, and analysis on NASCAR Talk and Motorsports Talk on NBCSports.com. Please visit NBCSports.com NASCAR or NBCSports.com motors. Check out coverage from myself, Dustin Long, Mike Hembry, and Dan Beaver. If you have any NASCAR and NBC podcast feedback, you can send to me on Twitter at Nate Ryan is my handle. Thanks again for listening to the NASCAR and NBC podcast. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.